This week's episode of the Hot 4 podcast is brought to you by Chris Moulton Group. Stay tuned to find out more about improving your mash efficiency with Chris Moulton. I'm Nick Law, and you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. With interviews, discussions, stories, and advice from a range of brewers and craft beer professionals, the Hot Forward Podcast is here to help you and your beer business hot rocket your way to success. Visit our website at hotforward.beer to find out more. Grab yourself a beer as we crack open another fresh episode of the Hot Forward Podcast. Hello, brewers and beer nerds, and welcome back for another sesh on the Hot Forward Podcast. There's a word that has been banded around craft beer circles for many years. Hyperlocalization. Hyperlocalization in craft beer refers to breweries primarily focusing on creating and distributing their beers within a very limited geographic area, typically within a few miles of the brewery. The idea behind this approach is to create a strong sense of community around the brewery, while also allowing the brewer to experiment with locally sourced ingredients and flavours and ideas that are unique to that particular area. By focusing on hyperlocalization, breweries can create a loyal customer base by centering themselves within the midst of their local community. After all, it's nice to be able to put a face to the name and talk directly with the people who make the beer. When concentrating on a small geographic area, hyper-local breweries can offer a more personal and intimate experience and build a reputation for quality and innovation that is difficult to replicate on a much larger scale. When executed successfully, this approach can often inspire a pilgrimage of sorts for both local residents and those further afield. As the saying goes, if you build it, they will come. A great example of this is Woodland Brewing, a microbrewery based in the small market town of Penniston on the edge of the Pennines. The brewer and owner Dave Hampshire is turning out some of the juiciest and most pleasant neepers I've tasted in a long time, most of which get supplied to his micropub, the Penniston Tap and Brew House. Another example would be Amity Brew Co, based in Sunnybank Mills in the northwest of Leeds. I'll fess up right now, I haven't actually been, but I've tasted some of their beers and their brew pub definitely is on the travel to list. If I'm truly honest, my main reason for the curiosity is twofold. Firstly, the co-founders Russ and Rich are really, really sound fellas. Having been landed an introduction to them by Cumbi Cryan from Round Corner Brewing, I've enjoyed chatting to the pair since about their ambitious plans for their brew pub. Russ and Rich have both enjoyed roles at various breweries and beer companies, including Vocation, North Brewing and Beerhawk, so they've come armed with a wealth of experience to their new venture. Secondly, as I ever dream about a future for my own brewery and brew pub, Emmanuel's, I was eager to ask questions about their business. Surely by selling direct to consumers, you're raking in all the profits and, and laying on beds of cash like Walter White from Breaking Bad, right? Right? Not quite, as we'll discover as we chat about their brewery, hyperlocalization, e-commerce, and the challenges of running a brew pub. But before we get into all that, I'm joined once again by Mike Benson from Chris Moulton Group to discuss a topic I certainly keep returning to again and again: brew house efficiency.
I'm here at Ciba BMX and I'm joined by Mike Benson from Chris Malting Group this week to talk all about efficiency. Hello. Hi, Nick. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Excellent. Yes, very well, thank you. How are you enjoying Ciba BMX so far? It's been very good so far. Lots of uh, nice conversations with customers. Yeah, great show. Yeah, some good beers to be had. Definitely some good beers. Absolutely. And a lot more to be had. Indeed. Early days yet. So I'd love this week to explore efficiency. Like efficiency is one of those things that brewers strive for, not only to ensure they're not wasting money unnecessarily, but also to make sure they hit target gravities. So firstly, I'd love to ask, how can brewers optimise their brew house efficiency when working with malt? And what are some of the common mistakes and pitfalls to avoid? Yeah, it's quite a big question. <laughs> deserves a big answer yeah it does <laughs> um, I would say that the main thing is to remember that your kit is different to everybody else's and not take the attitude of we've always done it this way that is probably one of the, the things I hear most of we've, we've always done it this way why change it so if, if we take the attitude of what little bits can we change step by step to make small differences and see if that makes any improvements. Ultimately, that starts with measuring things. So make sure you measure mashing liquor if you can, sparging volumes, pHs, weigh out the, the grist, double check the bag weights, and just the little bits, measure them and make little changes as you're going along. Yep. So make sure you've got the best extracts. So pH adjustments if needed and and temperature adjustments as well. Yeah. I always find it amazing that there are brewers out there who don't take lots and lots of data readings on things like some spreadsheets you see and you're like, oh my goodness, like that's amazing. You know, they've, they've really accounted for everything. But then sometimes you're like, you didn't even check your mash temperature. You didn't even write that down. And they're like, oh, well, I remember it. Yeah. You're not going to remember that like three years down the line when you're trying to troubleshoot something. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really nice. To, it, it is really hard to to write everything down. There, are, you know, brewers have a very hard job. Yeah, and the more and more pulled from pillar to post, and brewing is only part of what they have to do. So, I have a lot of sympathy for when when someone says, "Oh, you have to record it." You know, there's there's there is only limited time. I I understand that, uh, but yeah, being able to records different things and then put them into a graph and then you can see straight away if you've got a, a not looking at numbers is one thing as soon as you put it into a graph it just makes everything become apparent yep. and if anybody comes to me with any kind of malt problem the first thing I do is graph out the last few C of A's for what they're, they're looking for and then see if there's any peaks and troughs right. and then work through it same in the brewery yep just while we're talking about that data, how much attention should brewers be paying to the data sheets that come with the malt delivery with all the nitrogen levels and all that sort of stuff on it? I mean, yes, there are, there are not necessarily everything that's on there, but there's probably five bits of analysis that you, you do want to make sure are, are okay. I would always check the moisture because it's a commercial entity. If it's high, you're paying for water. So personally, I would check the moisture. I would always check the colour just to make sure it's within a the range of where it should be. If you've got one batch of malt that's at a low colour, then the next one at a high colour, you're going to pick up on it. Always check the extracts and use the as-is extract that's got the, the moisture taken away. And whenever you're doing a new recipe, check the malt extracts and make sure you're putting enough in. Yep. Lastly, I just take a, a look at the soluble nitrogen ratio 
and just make sure the malt's modified nicely. Yep. If you're looking at those five different things, everything else will follow. Diastatic power has become more of a, a talking point through the 2021 crop because it was quite low. Mm. So diastatic power has probably moved up there a little bit just to keep an eye on. Yep. So when it comes to mashing in then, or even putting your grist bill together, should, it, should a brewer start with the end in mind and, and what yeast strain they're going to use that's going to work with that malt, or should they be concentrating more on the mash temperature and pH? Um, I would probably always take a, a broader approach of everything that's going on. You obviously need, if you're using a strain like Windsor that doesn't ferment multi-trios, then you're going to need to adjust your mash temperature to make sure you've got more and more fermentables to make the final gravity. Yep. So always take your yeast strain fermentability into account. Um, but yeah, make sure your pH is within the the right level for the enzyme activity and adjust your mash pH for the for the enzyme activity that, that you're after. Ideally for extract, you want to be up around 67. That's when you're going to get the most efficiency. Right. But you've also got to make sure that you get the most attenuation that you need as well. Right. That's interesting. I... Um... I didn't know about efficiency around that level. Yeah, 67. It's something Carl was always very, very vocal about as well. 67 is perfect for getting the most efficient conversion. Yeah, and I suppose you're getting the best of both worlds then, because you're not right up in the stratosphere as terms of getting that full body but less fermentability. Yeah. But you're definitely getting some of that sweetness that you'd get, particularly like, as we said on a previous episode about Maris Otter and that, that flavour you get with a malt like that. Um, there's, there's a lot of debate about the ideal mash resting time. Some people swear by 60 minutes, some longer. The, the brewer that I took over when I worked at Sheffield Brewery Company was absolutely adamant that it had to be 90 minutes, not 60 minutes. That was a point of contention. Hi, Tim, if you're listening. Um, and I've even heard some people saying that conversion is done within 45 minutes. So what, what would you say the ideal, if any, mashing conditions are, particularly when it comes to time? And if we just think about pH as well, I know this is a huge question, but in regards to pH levels, what do the different various pHs within like 5.2 and 5.6, what character does that give a beer? I mean, the reason why we're looking for the pH within that range is because that, that's the optimum of what the enzymes work at. So if we were outside of that range, we will still get enzyme activity, mm. but it's not optimum. Right. So you may then need a longer stand or you may need to increase activity by lowering the temperature as well. Ideally, the mash stand time is ultimately down to the beers that you're brewing and your process. So if you're brewing a stout that's got huge amounts of adjuncts in there with very little diastatic power contribution, then ultimately you're going to need more activity over a longer period so you'll mash it 63 degrees C and you may give it 90 minutes. That's kind of like the, the old fashioned stout stands. Right. Um, which is what the brewers were, where I used to work at Burton Wood, that's what they would call that whenever we, we did it. If you're then talking about a more modern IPA with a high proportion of extra pale malt with very high enzyme levels and a little bit of wheat, 3% wheat maybe, then that conversion is gonna be done very, very quickly. Right and you, can, you, you may want to go higher. 60 minutes is kind of like the standard time, but I'm not against shortening, it, shortening right. that time. But my, my outlook on that is 
if you can save 20 minutes on mash stand time, you can go home 20 minutes earlier. <laughs> Absolutely. You can get the next brew in 20 minutes earlier. <laughs> yeah. So it's down to individual choices around the brewery and what beers have been brewed. Right. So I guess it comes down to knowing the malt and the kind of beer you're going to brew and, and yes. the yeast, like taking, like say, a good broad overview yeah. rather than we've always done it this way or, or whatever. So if you're trying to adjust your mash pH then, when do you do that? Because obviously you're leaving it to settle for a little bit, you're then taking a reading and then like you're doing it and you're like, like oh crap, that's way too low. Like, Yeah, I mean, there's very little you can do once right. it's it's in there in a mash tun. In a, in a mash conversion vessel, you can obviously add things and mix it in, but in a mash tun, you, you're kind of very limited. So that's where you might just make little changes to the next print. I, I, I wouldn't really worry too much. You might think about putting some... I, I, I'd probably leave it and just make adjustments to the next brew. Okay. So how are modern malt varieties geared up then for efficiency and to be to be more efficient? I know we talked in a previous episode about heritage malts, which don't have that. Um, but what, what happens with modern malt varieties that make them so efficient? Well, what's great about where we live in England and, and Great Britain is, is that we produce some of the best malting barley in the world. And the conditions that our malting barley grows under basically gives us low nitrogen barley. Mm. And if you've got low nitrogen barley, it means you've got high sugar content. Barley will either make nitrogen, protein, if it's stressed, or it'll make sugar in the form of starch. So where we are and the, the growing conditions that we have in the UK, we naturally have fantastic high starch, high extract barley to make beer from. Modern varieties are generally bred to ensure that that's kept up, um, and then along with that, bigger yields within the within the fields. Yep. And finally, what would you say the one biggest consideration a brewer needs to make when it comes to mash efficiency? Like, if you could impart one nugget of wisdom to a brewer listening to this, what would it be? I was always told that there's a wrong way of brewing, but there's no right way. So I suppose what I mean by that is don't necessarily follow what's in the books because sometimes they just don't work because everybody's kit's a little bit different and everybody's brewing a slightly different beer. But record bits of information and just change little bits at a time to make small steps. I don't think there's a golden nugget unless you're doing something very, very wrong. Just small steps at a time. It would be mine. Just, just, just remember that yes, there is a wrong way that will cause you a lot of problems, but there's no right way. Just try something. Yep. Amazing. Well, thanks for being on the show this week, talking about the mash efficiency and all things malt. How can people get in touch with Chris Malting Group to find out more about the malts you offer and chat to their local representatives? So all the information is on chrismalt.com. Um, there's a if you go to contact us on there. There's everybody's number on there. Um, Nigel looks after the south of the country. Stuart Swan looks after the east, uh, and I'm looking after Scotland, Western Wales. Myself and Stuart are brewers. Uh, we've both been in the game for quite some time. We enjoy helping brewers get better extracts. Uh, it's part of the fun of the job, if I'm honest with you. So, yeah, find us on there and, and, and drop us a line. Alternatively, you can contact hello at chrismalt.com. Awesome, thank you.
Thanks, Mike. And a big shout out to Chris Moulton Group for supporting the Hot 4 podcast. Make sure you visit chrismolt.com to find out more and get in touch with your local representative. One final thing before we tune into this week's discussion with Russ and Rich from Amity Bruco. What we'll say one, a couple of final things. Uh, we've got some great episodes coming up on the Hot Forward podcast, including Pip Young from the Coven talking about wellness offices at beer festivals and in tap rooms. Dave and Naomi from A Hoppy Place talk about beer politics and launching their own brewery, Indie Rabble Brewing Co. I catch up with James and Helen from Wilderness to talk about all things mixed firm. And Kelly and Bob from Good Chemistry shared their experience of taking on an historic pub in Bristol. And there are many, many more episodes in the pipeline. Firstly, if you're a supplier and you're looking to sponsor the show, we'd love to hear from you. If you head over to sponsorship.hotforward.beer, that's sponsorship.hotforward.beer, you can find out all that you need and help keep the show on the road while sharing your technical expertise or message direct into the ears of brewers and beer professionals. And secondly, if you're a regular listener to the show, I'd love it, love it, love it, love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this helps us to reach a wider audience. But don't stop there. Please share this podcast with members of your brew team and your colleagues within the brewery. I would love to expand the reach of this show to help more people by providing value and insights into the brewing industry to help everyone get ahead in the brewing and beer business. To see breweries wherever you are in the world, not just survive these tough economic times, but really thrive. So that being said, stay tuned and we'll be back in a moment with Russ and Rich from Amity Brewco after this short hop stand. This show is only made possible by our supplier sponsors who support this podcast on a regular basis and offer support and insights to all our listeners within the craft beer industry, whatever your need. This week's episode of the Hot Ball Podcast is proudly sponsored by Chris Malting Group. Since 1870, Chris Malt have been making malted barley for brewers and distillers all over the world from their home maltings in Norfolk, England. Today, they continue that work in four countries across seven maltings with a specific emphasis on supplying distilleries and craft breweries. From their traditional floor maltings to their state-of-the-art packaging line, all their malts are processed by a team of skilled maltsters. With a wide range of malts suitable for brewing to provide you with the foundations for creating your next beer, get in touch with Crisp today to find out more about their extensive range of malts and to speak to one of their technical sales reps. Get in touch at chrismalt.com. That's chrismalt.com. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. You can find out more about Hot Forward and the work we do within the industry at our website, hotforward.beer, or follow us on social media at hotforwardbeers. And if you really wanted to go the extra mile, you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify with what you think about this podcast. For now, let's crack open this week's discussion. So I'm at Ciba BRX with Russ and Rich from Amity. Your Hello. Leads. Hello. Hello. How are you guys? Very good, thank you. Yeah. So have you just arrived today or were you here yesterday as well? Uh, yeah, just today. Uh, I'm here for both days and Rich is sadly uh, disappearing tomorrow morning. Probably a little bit worse for wear though. Yeah, we um, planning on it. We've got we've got a beer pouring today over at the uh, Lochran's bar, so try hop saison, 
and then we have got our our pale ale water pistol is up for for the for national. the national pale ale category which is tomorrow i think it is tomorrow afternoon tomorrow. yeah so our assistant brewer dave's coming over tomorrow uh, and me and him will be commiserating slash uh, celebrating hopefully and you were saying Russ, that you're up against parker from double barrel yeah it's it's a, like there's a lot of other good breweries obviously but in terms of the profile of that beer it's probably the closest in there um so it's kind of our competition it's such a shame because like lucy and mike are amazing <laughs> Uh, Parker's an amazing beer, uh, so yeah, I'll be very sad uh, <laughs> to to lose to those guys, but also very excited uh, uh, for them as well. Obviously, it's good so. good company to be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 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 And Green Ducker in there with Remedy, it's good beer as well. So yes, yeah, other good bits. So, so how, how are they judging it this year? So I did the small pack Seba judging just before Christmas, okay. and they were doing it in the um, is it the B C J P, BJCP, the, I, BJCP. Yeah, it's got some B's and J's, P's. It definitely does. C. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but they're awarding like golds for beers rather than it being on like one one beer to rule them all. Yeah, yeah. But I, think, I would have thought in a circumstance like this, they would want one beer to rule them all. <laughs> so multiple beers can get a gold, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think within the category of bottle and can, uh, pale ale under five and a half percent. That's that's the very specific one that we're looking for, I think. So yeah. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see what happens. I'm excited. So if, just for our listeners, I'm, I'm sure there'll be loads of people that are aware of Amity, but just for anyone that isn't, because we do get a lot of listeners from the USA as well, Like, just tell us a little bit about your brewery and what you do and who you are. Uh, yeah, well, uh, me and Rich set up Amity in 2020. Um we launched impeccable timing. It, yeah, absolutely amazing timing. Best timing. Um, online only to start with. Um, uh, in uh, in the summer of 2020. But both me and Rich, you know, we we'd known each other for years, having worked together at places like Beerhawk and Rich moving on to Vocation, me moving on to North. But both of us wanting to do something, right. something together. Um, and we thought there was a lot of room in the market for uh, brew pubs in general, but specifically the taproom market in the UK in the main is majority cold clinical warehouse space. It's a secondary thought. Chipboard. Yeah, a little bit of that. And the, you know, the kind of uh, beer festival tables where if one person sits on one end, the whole thing flips over. Um, so we, we wanted to provide a real sort of US style brew pub experience where it was hospitality focused warm cozy inviting space but warm in a tap room i know i know, I know. possible it's crazy right crazy shirt sleeves in ours yeah. right <laughs> um and yeah we we wanted something where we were in the middle of a community right. uh so northwest leeds where we're based it's uh beautiful um what was a, a woolen producing and, and uh, production mill um, and yeah, it sort of lends itself to having an amazing uh, group of people in that place. Um, uh, and, and yeah, they keep supporting us, don't they? They keep coming out and having having good times. So, yeah, and I think yeah. we had, there's one big difference, I, w- I would say, in um, the thinking three years ago when we started to, to now, and it's that um, we thought that we were trendsetters 
trying to go directly to consumers with pretty much all of our offerings. So there was very little trade in our in our business plan. It was it was pure B two C focused. Um, and then when March 2020 hit, by April 2020, the majority of brewers were all B two C focused. So that advantage had completely completely gone. But in some ways, was that not? A blessing in disguise, because I remember when we were at the Round Corner Brewing Retreat in January, talked to you about this, saying how, particularly with like your specials, rather than if that's what people call one-off beers these days, but um, particularly with those like one-off beers, selling them direct-to-consumer versus selling them into like an independent bottle shop, you know, it's like, um, that's almost like a neddy no-no to, to do that, you know, because it's like, oh no, you know, well, you, you're undercutting us or, you, you know, with this, some kind of, a, how can I put it, like a non-exclusivity about this beer. And w- did you find that the pandemic maybe alleviated some of that awkwardness that you get between um, the direct-to-consumer exclusivity, so to speak? Yeah. Did that question even make sense? I've not even had any beers yet. I, I, <laughs> something that sticks in my head when you're mentioning that was, was cloud water right. as an example. I think there was a lot of flack when they started doing online shop as a big push from their trade customers. And it's because they didn't really set out to have an online shop. But unfortunately, it's one of those where it's like, you've got to survive as a business. We've got this extremely unprecedented, hate that word, but overused, but you know, unprecedented time and, and, and way of reaching people. So you've got to adapt. It's adapt or die. You know, that, that's basically what it comes down to. Um, and I, I think with our, because we started from that base, we've we've had nobody sort of challenge us on on our way of working. Yep. I think that's that's key for us because the the independent trade that we've brought along since since we opened, um, they know that we were primarily a B two C business anyway, so we were selling direct to the consumer through our tap room and it wasn't a hidden covert thing you know it was it was very open and uh, it's been it's been great we we manage it well don't we We've, the, yeah there's a, it's a good balance yeah and our current trade customers we don't have many but the ones that support us really really support us right um and they they choose to stock us regularly uh, or, or permanently in some cases which which is great we don't have a lot of beer to sell yeah you know um, so what, what size hectolitre do you so do the batch or? 10, he- 10, 10 hectolitre setup um, where we're brewing now on the reg probably about two to three times a week now. right so. and are you serving direct from tank no right no because we think that's a bit of a marketing right. thing more uh, than a, why, why is that I just I think there is uh, I think unless you set up for it and you've got the cash to spend on dispensing bright tanks and things like that, I just I, I think it's not the way to well, go. And, and we would not have the space for that either. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah there's that too. Yeah. We are. Yeah, we're, a lot of our space is, um, is given up to hospitality. Right. So it's probably 50%, if not more, of our entire footprint is hospitality-led. Right. Uh, the outside terrace, the indoor tap room. Uh, it's probably outside terrace a third, indoor tap room a third, brewery a third. Mm. So um, 
giving away that space to yep. fancy tanks to pour directly from. We, we couldn't do it, could we? I'm, I'm, it. I'm interested, actually, from... Because you've both got, like, e-commerce backgrounds, like you're saying with beer. Is it, I, know, I know you have. Both with, with, with beer. I've got a little bit, but not as much as... So, um, no, nowhere near. I, I'm interested... With you coming into hospitality, obviously, you know, the, the whole e-commerce thing is, is very direct to consumer. But what have you had to learn about hospitality or what have you learned about hospitality and uh, uh, through this experience of setting up Amity? And is there anything that if you go back in time and give yourself some advice, like what would you say to yourself? Oh, blimey. Well, you're, Russ is quite ex- experienced in hospitality. So my, myself, not so much. So there's probably a lot that I've learned, but I think one of the one of the biggest things for us is that we we have a very trusted GM in, in our business. He's a really experienced, confident bar manager. And it allow I think that allows myself and Russ the the freedom to focus on on other areas of the business, whereas we we might be constantly focused on the, the tap room. We have somebody who, who we trust who's doing a really good job for us. And I think that, that was a, a big learning for me because when we, when we started, we, it, it was pretty quickly that we decided we needed a GM. But in my mind, I was working the bar. You know, when, right. we, when we started, I thought we were, we were going to be doing that. And having James on, on board, has, that's really shown us that we, we can focus on other things and start to really grow the area the business in in other areas that we wouldn't be able to do if we had him so i think i think when we first started we moved quite quickly as well um it it did feel as though we were doing a lot of things all at once um and the reason that we could do that is because we've made that decision to spend money on staff um very early doors but that has been paid back to us in spades really by having experienced operators within the business like it's not us brewing because if i'm in the brewery that is a disaster that is literally the worst thing that can ever happen um rich is an experienced home brewer um but i think even rich would say if it's him in the brewery on the big kit it's probably something that you know we couldn't sustain and certainly produce the stuff that we're producing, you know, to the quality that, that we want and are. Um, I think my biggest learning is that whatever you think something's going to cost, <laughs> double it and add a zero on the end of it. Um, it always, I mean, that's, that's the thing for hospitality in general. It costs a lot to do what you do. There's a lot of outlay, especially when it's an empty shell and you, you are starting from scratch. But at some point there is a sort of stopping point and then it's maintenance and upkeep and things like that. And that that's where you've got to make it look good because otherwise people won't come. They won't come and spend their time and their money and, you know, uh, yeah. um, it does make and a enjoy difference, it. doesn't it? It does make a difference. The other burning question I've, I've been dying to ask actually is a lot of, obviously a lot of, breweries have, have now got tap rooms in like we described earlier and have welcomed these additional revenue streams um you know selling direct to consumer and the, the margins they afford i'm interested how much of a a, a difference because that's that's like your main source of revenue stream right um I, I wonder how much of a difference that you guys feel running amity and having pretty much retained most of like the vast 
disproportionately margins through beer sales or is or am i completely deluded and that actually where you're maybe getting more margin through selling direct to consumer you're spending more because you're running a more hospitality-led business again i hope that made sense it does i mean like we were talking about it this morning one one of our largest costs is staff right right and that wouldn't be the same in many other breweries who might run a two or two or three strong team Mm. um you're right that the, the the stronger margin is direct to consumer but while whilst we've been setting up we've had our startup costs we've now expanded into new equipment we've developed the um the terrace outside we've started a barrel project all all of that would not have been possible if we were just direct to trade from the outset yeah. i i don't i don't think i think it'd have been incredibly difficult um so yeah we're not sat there milking it we are we are <laughs> laying on beds of cash like you break it back yeah. what uh, scrooge mcduck uh, <laughs> style uh, money bank operation yeah. no, uh, it's just allowed us to i mean the our upcoming barrel store project will will release the first two beers within a month hopefully, yeah, hopefully within, in April. within a month yeah. and you know that firstly the crowdfunding that we did was was amazing um and that helped us in in some way but the just the support of the local community through the tap room has allowed us to um to develop the business into other areas that might not have been open to us for 3 to 5 years right. you know as a as a startup um, it's a it's a very different model now, I guess, to the tr- more traditional brewery model of straight to the pubs and bars. But don't get me wrong, you know we we're focusing just as much on selling to pubs and bars now that we've got the capacity to to do that. Yeah, we um, obviously at this point in the year we're budgeting for our next financial year and where that goes, and trade is already ahead of our forecasted budget for the year, which is a brilliant place to be in. And it's almost the opposite way around to where breweries usually go, right? You get yourself out of trade, you get yourself known within a market. And it's that we decided that our market was incredibly local to start with. So lots of people in Leeds don't know we exist. And it's a fun place to be because it means that you get to introduce them to you. And then when, where where are you? Where are you based? You're like, Northwest Leeds, mate, and they go what? But then we've got this amazing experience for them to to come and come and see, and it isn't this you know cold December warehouse where and, and we're got... a little bit hidden away, yeah, so you, you, it's almost like you've found a secret. If you do, yeah, yeah. somebody yeah. might tell you and find us, but if you've come across us by by accident and then you see the space, you're instantly won over. So. It's, Sometimes good to be a little bit hidden. Sometimes not not so good. <laughs> yeah. I think if you are a brewery, a new brewery, God help you, uh, coming into the market. We said this this morning, but if you are a new brewery coming into the market or you're a brewery that's going into a second site or expanding, if a hospitality-led tap room is not on your plan, don't do it. Because beyond a certain point of growth you have to find somewhere for that beer to go. And if it's not in the regional pub groups, if it's not in the supermarkets, it has to be direct to consumer. 
you have to do it that way. There are only so many bottle shops and craft independent bars out there, and they've got so much more choice than they've ever had in the market. So you should try and build a community around it. So how, when you're approaching marketing Amity to customers and then marketing Amity to trade, like how, what are the differences you found in marketing your brand and your business to those two customer bases? Like, do you take different approaches for like direct I mean, consumer versus? So like... certainly from, from the e-commerce and the uh, direct consumer through the tap room, they're very similar. I mean, our, we have one newsletter and that newsletter services both the e-commerce buyer and the tap room yeah, visitor. Yeah. Um, the, the marketing is, is very similar. It's based around community, friendship and telling, good beer. Telling a story to yeah. people as well. Yeah. We do a lot of collaborations because it, it forms part of the friendship element of our, of our business. Um, it's great story to tell to people. It's all, it all, you know, the last three releases have been two or three releases. Three releases have been collaborations with other independent businesses. Um, the tap room and the e-commerce side is very, very similar. Trade, not sure so much. Yeah, I, th I think there's something that I'm sort of slowly working on in the background, which is it comes down to the fact that for trade, we don't have a lot of beer. And because we don't have a lot of beer, when you find our beer on draft somewhere that isn't the tap room, it, it is quite, we want it to feel quite special for people. So we are slowly building up to about 10 permanent right. draft accounts and they will be exclusively supported with POS, uh, glassware events, tastings, all that kind of stuff. But you'll only get to be part of that if you are one of our more permanent accounts mm. effectively. So that's something that I'm working on, almost creating a community, but with a, a really small audience of bars, restaurants, pubs, that kind of thing. Yeah. We, we so are, we've got a few already. That but are we are, really we're still in a point oh, yeah. of, our, of our business where I'll still get a text message from somebody to say, I've just seen your beer on in X. It's still quite a, still quite a surprise. It's, re it's really nice. It's really nice to, to get that. Um, still, not a honeymoon period, is it, I would say, but that B2B trade side of things is, has been an involvement of where we are with the, with the business now. We only turned B2B trade on end of summer last year. Right. So we had two years of really just focusing on, on you know, the end customer, uh, the guests that come into our tap room or, as Rich says, the online audience. So... Our trade, our trade business is so young at this point, but because we are still quite a small team, it is, it's me going out and seeing people. It's me doing tastings and samples and things like that. It's, do, do, do people generally, those trade customers, know you guys from your, your previous life at North and at Vocation or are you some, new faces? Or? There's some, but there's, uh, I'd say a call out for me would be... Um, James Orcock, who owns uh, it's a little bistro uh, restaurant in uh, Beverly on the way to Hull. Um, uh, he was a Farsley local, uh, but he's since worked for Michelin Star Restaurants and now set up his own. Um, uh, it's like a French-Spanish uh, style bistro. And he supported us in the crowdfund, didn't know him beforehand. 
and he's now got a permanent amity line within his venue. Right. We've done tastings for him, and we support them as, as much as we can as a small business. Um, but we didn't, yeah, we didn't necessarily know him previously. And a, a big shout out to the people of Farsley because they oh, are God, yeah. like, you know, where our people are proud of being from Yorkshire, mm. and then they're proud of being from Leeds, and then they're proud of being from Farsley. That's their. Like the re- people who live in Farsley are really proud. The amount of people that come up to us. I've met somebody here today. Really? Yeah, she's from, she's working on the coffee shop. She's from Rodley, which is next to Farsley. Right. You guys are from Farsley. <laughs> like, it's proud to, to be from there. So it's, um, that helps us as well, I think. Massively. Yeah. And what's it like? Because Leeds is akin to Sheffield. In some ways, but even more. So, well, actually, probably I would probably equate Leeds to be probably someone more like Manchester as far as beer is concerned. Like there were some really big hitters in Leeds. You know, you've got like Northern Monk, you've got North, you've got yeah, Vocation. I know they're not Kirkstall. quite Leeds and Kirkstall, yeah. Um, I mean, what's it like being up against those brewers in terms of like trying to get your brand out there and your name out there and your beers out there? And it, it's not competitive like right. that. Or it certainly doesn't feel doesn't that way. Feel like that. Or... When we first launched, and um, we were moving from initially having con- contract brew to bring in house, Kirkstall offered the use of their canning line so that we could get packaged beer out the door. And then when they just got too busy, we'd just recently done a beer with Northern Monk. We did a uh, with Brian came over and he just said, "Oh, just come and can with us. It's absolutely fine." We buy cans and hops. Through Northern Monk, right? We're that you know we've brewed beers with Anthology and you know small smaller breweries, uh, and it's it feels very community focused. You know, one of the, the things that we really like to focus on. Yeah, all right. There's only so much space on taps on bars and things like that, but we're not fighting it out between them. There's a bar in Bramley, which is just south of where Farsley is in in Leeds, and um, he didn't have room on his bar they are incredibly well supported by turning point who are based over in Nairsborough um and they didn't want to take anything off the bar but they were really keen to have amity on so we're like okay well let's put some more lines in then in that case let's work together and just put some more lines in then you've got room for us on the bar but you've russ is back from america last year yeah and the the micro local element of of the US and the the towns and cities that have visited, there were small independent breweries in locations next door to each other that were serving their local market. And ourselves and Horsworth Brewery, uh, what five five miles if, away, if that. But we both have successful tap rooms where. We, we can operate businesses and service the local community and the community can move around between the different places, but perhaps that is where it's moving to more to, more to that micro-local where you build your community and you become important in your community. And that's really important to us. You know, it's, there's, a, there's a point at which growth becomes important for some and not as important for others as, as having a more successful sustainable yeah. business and i think the thing with that hyper localism 
that people often tend to forget is like it's like that Joni Mitchell song like don't you know how it always goes you don't know how what you've got till it's gone and that's, I know that was incredibly cheesy but there you go um, should have sung it mate should have gone for it hit those yeah, come on. hit those high notes <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's there's um, or was I should say a, a butcher's and a farm shop near me called Beaches of Walkley in Sheffield and um, absolute central hub of our community and um, the owners, Chris and Donna, wanted to retire. Um, but basically, uh, by selling the business, but they they couldn't sell the business and they'd start to lose money because the council put all these roadblocks in places for to aid cycling and, and, it, and, and that just put people off driving into Walkley to get the meat or whatever produce he was selling. And um, in the end, they gifted the shop to this other couple and he's got a butcher, smaller butchers elsewhere in a more affluent area of the city and obviously I was I was really gutted because I thought well I, I won't be able to get any meat from there anymore uh, which is the main thing I'd go in and buy but I've noticed it even more so with other things like for, firstly like I know everyone eats meat and stuff but like for any carnivores amongst us like I, I noticed like I can't just go and get some chicken breasts or some sausages or whatever and, and know where that meat's coming from and the supply chain in which it comes and that it's good quality and then you just end up for convenience sake in a supermarket it's like I don't want to buy chickens that have been produced god knows where but it's the little things as well like they used to serve a load of craft beers in there and so I could go in and I'd see Thornbridge might have a new beer, Abbeydale or Triple Point. I'd, I'd, I'd go pick up a can. Whereas I don't do that now as much. And I think if, if we take the, the eye off the ball locally and people don't, you know, I know in our industry, everyone's saying support local, support local. But if you don't support local, then it, it's got, it is gone forever. Yeah, I think we, we're, at, we're at capacity where we are now and pretty much two out of three conversations we have is all about what we do next um and the the biggest thing on our head is keeping to those core values we we know we need space to grow but at what point do we stop growing you know at what point are we going to be happy with the level of growth that we've achieved we don't have massive grocery aspirations we're not looking to have our beer on in all of the big M&B pub groups that that's not our path it's not certainly not what we we want to aspire for um we want to be a smaller brewery that focuses on independence and and where that goes so uh, but whatever we do next will have more capacity it has to be community focused it has to be focused around where it is and integrating ourselves within mm. wherever it goes yeah i was struggling really hard then not to think of the ducktales theme tune when you were saying about not not rolling in cash yeah <laughs> not yet anyway it's not many of us rolling so, in so, cash. Well, no, no we're not rolling in cash no no, no. are there any breweries that are <laughs> um budweiser yeah well it's about to hide maybe <laughs> um yeah. so what what is next for Amity? Yeah, well, it, it is the um, so the the tap room and the the Farsley location that we've got now is probably a teenager. So we're now at the stage where it's grown up through its difficult period. It's becoming it, the times are still really difficult, aren't they? So who who knows what 
this year brings. But the we're starting to be found by more people. But we've made we're very comfortable with how the place is operating, aren't we? At the moment, you know, we've we've increased the capacity in in the brew house, but we're now at, at capacity as far as tanks and and equipment goes. Um, so for us, it's it is to keep the Farsley site going and running as it is and as well as it does, um, and then it's it's to find another Farsley. It's what's the what's the next? We 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 think we've come across a model that that works. So why wouldn't we try and take that to another community that doesn't have that kind of service and that kind of product, which which. Farsley had lots of things, but it didn't have a didn't have a place where you could go like with your meat supplier. You could go and stand in that place as a proud resident of Farsley and say, they actually make that beer there and they serve it like one pint's worth of beer in the line between our cellar and our Just less. Just less. You know, it's it's a connection to the drink with the with the person that's drinking it. So why wouldn't we try and take that model and just put it somewhere that it currently doesn't exist? Yeah. I think that's really interesting because with some of the clients I work for, that they are located in areas of the UK where there is no quote-unquote craft beer scene, you know, some literally in the middle of nowhere, and people flock to it, you know, and they, they, they flock to their breweries and tap rooms, and people are often saying, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. And I guess it's really easy to, to forget. Well, another example would be, um, wood, oh, I think they're called Woodland Brewery in Penniston, which is um, on the outskirts of Sheffield and Barnsley. And um, it was a brew pub, but now um, Dave's upscaled to a small five-barrel brewery just around the corner. But he said there'll be people going in there having their first ever taste of like a, a quadruple or a saison or something. Well, you know, and and their minds are blown that beer can actually taste like that. And it's the same with, with like with these uh, other breweries I work with. Like you know, the, all these people getting to experience this for the, the beer and the vibe for the first time. So I, I definitely think it's um, it's super important to explore those areas. Yeah, I think whatever we do next, it will be definitely bigger than what we've got now, um, with a little bit of room to grow. But it won't be a regional brewery it won't be um yeah it won't be a you know a vocation or a something where it just grows and grows and we add tanks and we keep going and yeah it'll it'll potentially have more of an of an experience yeah. feel to it so food food will be in our our minds as now we've got a local restaurant that we work with who supplies this ship food direct but we also uh, we also serve pizza now direct from the pub from from those guys and food will be a, be a part of what we do and perhaps some other you know whether it's coffee or bakery something else that forms a little part of a community we'd like yeah community's the thing i think being part of a community and almost trying to become a bit of a hub for people that's not just kind of a friday saturday night thing like something that's a bit more seven days a week yeah i think that that is firmly rooted in in what we'd like to deliver on i think for for next yeah yeah one last question then be, before we go um where do you see the brewing industry heading over the next 12 
months. He says, whilst seeing a, a, a screen of the budget happening <laughs> in the background. Well, whilst uh, the Tory no, shafters, well and no, truly. No VAT breaks, probably. Um, uh, probably contracting overall. Uh, we've had closures already in 2023. I only see that continuing to happen. Um, but I think it will be uh, smaller, more sadly traditional focused output um, that probably ends up going that way, I think, where margins are extremely tight. They're being squeezed on all sides and they don't have a B2C audience to... to help them tough it through the tough times that that's my that's where i think it's gonna go rich <laughs> it's your crystal ball don't, I, I have no crystal ball um i've so i know supermarkets are a like a, a dirty word to to some people and i've seen if we take tesco as, a, as an example i've seen tesco go through through the gamut of starting people into craft craft beer and probably the the Sheffield brewery that you mentioned people might have even been introduced to craft beer and would go to that Sheffield brewery because they had a punk IPA or they had a Goose Island in in Tesco's and then Tesco's took that to an extreme and the choice of 440 mil cans that were in Tesco's at one point was unbelievable that's gone down the other side now in in my eyes and the start in Tesco are now finding that they think they know what people like so they're rationalising the range and I see that as a bit of an opportunity again for more like your, your breweries like us like small bottle shops who can then you know they can start to compete not not on range but on value that they're offering a customer you know knowledge and experience when you come into the shop and um smaller breweries like like us will benefit from people finding out about craft beer through supermarkets but the exciting stuff doesn't seem to be there in the supermarkets as much anymore it's a lot more core focused yeah so perhaps that's an opportunity for us to using these, the bigger powers of the retailers to help us as smaller smaller brewers offer the exciting things which take people from a gateway drinker to a to an experienced craft beer drinker to an aficionado you know yep i'm quite i'm positive and and upbeat about the next 12 months but no it's going to be difficult yeah i think i'm positive about where we are yeah i think that the market is going to still have a real challenge over the next year cool how can people find out more about amity and try your beers and yeah well it's um amitybrew.co is the is the website so um the tap room is based in farsley in uh, northwest leeds so i think we said farsley enough yeah farsley <laughs> uh, they've got quite an up-and-coming football team as well <laughs> so yeah you might see those pushing their way up to the uh the dizzy heights of the league, not not very, not not too far away, but um, yeah, tap, through, yeah, tap room is a fifteen minute cab outside of town, um, dead easy to get to. But yeah, online if you want to order, yeah, sign up to the mailing list as well. It's got all the you know we're emailing every every week, and Barrel Project is out soon. Yeah, yeah, Instagram, TikTok, all Amity LinkedIn. Brew Co. 
Snapchat. <laughs> Amity Bruco on all channels. All, every single every one. Reddit. Every single one. Tumblr. MySpace. Yeah. Uh, soon to be Discord. Discord, well, yeah, yeah, check that out. Awesome. Brilliant. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thanks. Well, it's that time again at the bar for another week of the Hot 4 podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify and all other good platforms. Be sure to visit hotforward.beer to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Remember to follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and for another week. Cheers. <laughs>